I think that every Christian sometimes has the kind of questions and doubts that this great psalmist named Asaph had that day. Um, I actually have some Christian friends who tell me that they don't. I suppose I believe them. Uh, They're credible people. But I think that most of us who go to church can really relate to what Asaph had to say, that even long time Jesus' followers have times where we have real questions about significant parts of our faith, sometimes as much about, as about things like, is God actually here and is he good? I'll just tell you, there are a lot of things in our world that should raise up questions in our mind, I mean, if we think about them at all. I mean, over the past number of weeks and months, I've talked about the growing violence in our own country that is sort of ripping us apart. We have to ask, where's God? Why doesn't he stop all of that? And if we look out into the rest of the world, and you look at what has been happening from the Middle East and the, and the migration, I mean, of millions of people, refugees. And when you think about it, that so many of those who are homeless and, and, and are refugees are little children. When you think about that, and when you think about those big things, and then even the personal things, the stories that we continue to hear uh, in our church or, or among our family and friends of people diagnosed with terminal cancer, or people who have children who are born with congenital handicaps, and then you just think about all the natural disasters and wars. I mean, thousands of things. I mean, all of those, when we stop and think about them, raise the same question. Where is God, the kind of God we believe in? I mean, who's powerful and good and actually here? Where is God in the midst of all of this? And that brings us to this heart cry that I have this week that I've called those times of questioning and doubt. I know this, I've I've gone to church a long time. So I know there are a lot of church people who say that people of faith never have any doubts. But even, even to say that, I think, is to misunderstand what faith and doubt are all about. It's, it's to make us think that doubt is the opposite of faith. And it's not. Unbelief, absolutely not believing, that might be the opposite of doubt, but faith and doubt are not opposites. I mean, when you really stop and think about it, um, we can only doubt what we already believe. An atheist has doubts, right? (laughs) Different from mine. An atheist believes there is no God, but the doubt that he has is maybe there's actually a God and someday I'm going to have to stand in front of him. That's that's an atheist's doubt. Now, I've got to tell you something here. Because I'm one of those people who goes through a lot of times of questioning things. I have found that doubt only becomes a problem for us as Christians when we run away from the questions. When we actually bring the questions that we have directly to God and to his people within a community like this, at the end of the day, I mean, it may take a little while, but at the end of the day, what I have found is that God is big enough to handle our questions, that when we bring them to him honestly and candidly, that he shows up and lets us know that he is there. And that when we ask those questions and acknowledge what we are asking inside, far from that, weakening our walk with God, at the end of the day, it deepens that relationship to God. 
My own experience with God has often been deepened most, most deeply, most graphically, most fully, when I've actually had those times of wondering where God is and taking the time to bring those things to Him. Times when I've experienced untimely deaths among my family or times when there are just questions that I cannot fully answer. And if you don't believe me, I, that's why I wanted to take out this great psalm. I've never experienced scripture, I think, more powerfully than this morning with that marvelous video taking Psalm 73 and putting it into our real lives. What we have in Psalm 73 is a man of real faith wrestling with real doubt. Did you see that? In verse 2, he gives this, this amazing description of what doubt feels like. He said, as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. See, for, for those of us who know God, whenever there are difficult times that come in our lives, the thing that gives us a foothold that we can step out onto is our relationship to God. Everything else may be wrong, but we step out and God, God is there. When the one that we are questioning and doubting is God himself, then when the questions come, those doubts come, then you step out and, and just feels like you're going to slip and fall. You may not understand that in Southern California, but I'm just telling you, when you live in Chicago as long as I did, and you step out at night in, in the middle of January, and there's this stuff called black ice. Anybody even heard of that? You don't see it. You step out. All you feel like you can do is possibly slip and fall. That's what it felt like for Asaph. He was a man of strong faith. God was at the center of his life, but at this point, he couldn't figure out what God is doing. Uh, he'd almost lost his belief in God. But by the end of the psalm, and I hope you have a Bible in front of you, verse 28, his faith is stronger than it had ever been before. As for me, he says at the end, it is good to be near God. I, I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. In fact, I'm going to tell everybody about all your good deeds. That's how he ends. Uh, do you see it? There is quite a journey between verse 2 and 28. Do you see that? And I want us to take it today. I want this man, we, only, we don't have time to look at it as carefully as I would like, but I want us to walk from this man who asked real questions to this place where his relationship to God was richer and deeper than it had ever been before. I want him to lead us. And I pray that maybe what he experienced one day in the house of God that deepened his relationship to God might happen to some of us who have come to worship today. Now, now the psalm itself is so beautiful. There are two halves of it. In the first one, he wants us to sort of feel what he was feeling with all of his doubts, verses 1 to 14. And then in verses 15 to 28, he begins walking us through what happened one day that brought him to a deeper faith. So let's just let him walk us through that, all right? So the first part, he describes the problem, verses 1 to 14, and it really was a problem between a clash between what we believe. So we come to church and we say this is what we believe, and then we go out and what we observe seems to be so different, a clash between what we believe and what we observe. So what Asaph, the psalmist, believed, he expressed in verse 1. Look at it. He said, surely God is good to his people. Anybody here believe this? God is good to his people. 
God is good to those who are pure in heart, and those, those are those who really want to know him and walk with him. That's what Asaph believed. I think in the first half of his worship services, Dwayne, he probably, uh, you probably put this song into a worship uh, service, gave it some country western feel, got up there and did some bluegrass piano like you did, and so he sang this, this is what I believe, surely God is good to his people, surely God is good to those of us who are pure in heart. That's what he believed, he sang it in church. Then he left church. And what he saw was, it seemed like God was doing good stuff, not for his people, but for all these wicked, rotten people out there. So if you read through verses 3 through 11 that our video showed us so, so powerfully, uh, Asaph saw not, not the prosperity, good things happening to God's people, but, but to others. So it's almost like he says something like this, and I, I would encourage you to read through verses 3 through 11. It's not real encouraging stuff. But he, he says something like this. All right, come on, you church people. Open your eyes. Whatever that preacher up there in church tries to say, it's really the rotters out there in this world who absolutely deny God who are getting good things and have no problems. And he goes on and just tells us they're proud, they're loud-mouthed, they're arrogant, they deny that God is even there, and, uh, but, but nothing goes wrong with them. In, in fact, they're rewarded with being popular People might even vote for them in an election. <laughs> People sort of look at them and say, that's what I want to be like. Look, look, he's got all the good stuff. So if I live the way he does or she does, that's, that's the way I want to be. Read verse 12. That's, that's where it's all summarized. God, this is what the wicked are like. They're the ones always free of care, and then they just go on amassing wealth. So, so you see it? That is the problem that confronts Asaph one day and leads to all of his doubts. God, you're supposed to be good and, and you promise to be good to your people, but how can you let this happen? Is it a problem that any of you can relate to? I thought of illustrations, and I think all of us know so many of the things that have come out, you know, with Wall Street where people who have gotten so far ahead with finances over the last couple of decades and, and the people underneath them were left with only debts, and yet they continue to, to, to prosper. You know all those stories or movies made about it. But maybe you say, yeah, I'll preach at them, Pastor. I think this sort of thing happens in our lives all the time. So I was thinking of a more just down-to-earth illustration. So I thought about when I was in the first grade. Pastors always use their early lives, you know, in, in sermons. When I was in the first grade, I remember so well going out one day at recess into the kindergarten, and third graders had uh, recess, same time as first graders, and the third graders were bullies, and they were bigger. And, and I remember every, every day they would bully us out there, and one day I took my basketball there uh, to school, and, and the first graders were trying, you know, to heave that thing up and, and shoot goals, but the third graders came and just took it away. Well, I was angry. And I saw my first grade teacher. She was the one in charge of recess that day, Mrs. Legg. My memory as a first grader was she was one formidable woman. That, that, that's what I, she was not small. I remembered that, and I said, she'll do something about this. So I went up to Mrs. Legg's, and I said, have you been watching what's been happening over here? They're bullies. They took away our basketball. They're having all the fun, and, and we get to do nothing. And I was sure she was going to take care of it. You know what she said to me? It's a cruel world, Greg. 
Why do I still remember that? I don't remember much of first grade. I was angry. I thought, but you're big, and you're the teacher, and you have authority, and you're not doing anything. I'm guessing she's wanting me to learn that all of life I can't go running. I don't know what she was trying to have me learn. All I know is that that's how Asaph felt. God, I believe in you. I, I try to walk with you. I come to you, and you see what's happening. They're denying you, and yet you do nothing about it. So that, that, that's what led to his questions and doubts. Now, here, here, we've got to make this thing more personal. Here's the question I have when I read this. What made that problem of that kind of injustice such a big problem one day for Asaph? I mean, surely this one day wasn't the first time that he'd ever experienced it. What was it that this day made him so upset? And I'll tell you... It's found in verses 13 to 14. You see why this one day, this became a crisis of faith. Notice it. If I had spoken out like that, no, 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 let's go to, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. Surely I have washed my hands in innocence. And all day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. Do you see all the times he talks about my and I? Now, now it shouldn't be so, but let's face it. This big problem all over our fallen world of the innocent suffering doesn't usually become much of a problem for us until we personally become the suffering innocent. Then it's a problem. Then we run to God and say, why me, Lord? And you see what he says. You're supposed to be the good, good to the pure in heart. I've kept my heart pure, and yet I'm not getting any good out of it. They're getting all the good. Now, when I read this, it, this would be easy for a preacher just to get up and preach all the time, you know, hours about, you know, your self-absorption and your self-centered. I could preach to you about this a lot without wanting to look in the mirror myself too much. But I don't want to do that. I mean, it really is wrong for him to be so self-absorbed. And it was a problem that he had to turn, why me, Lord? But the fact is, he had real questions. And they're the kind of questions I think we need to wrestle with. So if someone comes to you and is going through a time like he was going through and brings these kind of issues, what would you say to that person? Maybe you've come to church today yourself and, and you have those kind of things happening in your life or in your family or around you, and so you have these kinds of questions. Where do we find any solution or help? And that brings me, I, I think we need to get there, to the second part of his poem, to, of his psalm, verses 15 to 18. I've called it the solution. Now, I've got to give you realistic expectations. He doesn't deal with ever, every major injustice in the, in the whole world. But what he does that day is at least he gets that first step that makes it possible for him actually to trust God, to be at peace, and to know that God is a refuge and will bring about ultimate good. What, what happens? What happens there? I want us to grab hold of this. The first thing I want you to see is where he discovered the hope to walk with God again. Verses 15 to 17, let me read it again. God, if I had spoken out, if I had spoken what's inside my heart like that, I would have betrayed your children. 
those who would have heard me would have had their own faith undermined. Do you see that? But when I tried to understand all this, it, it troubled me deeply until, till what? I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood. See, thoughts were running around in his mind that I, I imagine he must have been a church leader that he said, if I'd told anybody else what I'm going through right now, it would have undermined their faith and, and your name would have been to me and I can't do that. And, and, and so one day he walked into the house of God and what happened, he began to worship. And do you know what worship really is? It's not just the service that we have, it's any time you put God at the center of your vision. Worship is everything else seems to be so big to us. We look inside of ourselves, and all the problems seem to be so huge and we lift our head up, even like that song we sang at the beginning, The Fall. We lift our eyes up toward God and in the midst of all that darkness, the shadows are dispelled because he is light and we begin to see things as he sees things. That's what happened to Asaph one day. All these thoughts were running around his mind that were just destroying everything about his inner life and he thought would harm others as well. Then he entered into the house of God. Now, um, I'll tell you, I really asked myself, why did he even go to worship that day? I mean, he was angry with God. I don't think he would have wanted to go to church that day, do you think? Anybody agree with me? He wouldn't have felt like showing up. So I asked myself, why did he show up? Maybe he had to. Uh, maybe like Kathy and Kelly, he had to lead the service. You know, they had to start the whole thing. Couldn't, couldn't fail to show up. Uh, maybe like, like, like Dwayne and Gabriel, he had to lead the worship that day. Maybe he had to preach the sermon. Maybe he had to preach the sermon. I, I just want you to see this happens to all of God's people. But one way or the other, he walked into the house of God and things began to change. So I had to ask myself, I'm, not, I'm going to be preaching to people who have shown up at the house of God. What happened in his life that day that changed things? I want you to experience it as well. So I, I've just jotted these down. I don't know if I've said them well, so look at them and listen and, and see if maybe God will speak to you in the same way. There are several things that happen in worship that I pray might happen to you today. What did he discover as he worshiped? One, he gained, when he looked at God, he gained a new perspective on human destiny. And by that, you know what I mean by that? Where things are really headed at the end of the day. Look, look at verses 17 and 18. I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. See, again, when you worship, you see things from God's perspective. Otherwise, I mean, like Asaph, he just kind of said, I'm only looking at everything that's happening in my world from, from a human perspective, from a limited time-bound observer. So as I look at this world, all these temporary things out here that I'm envying, they seem to be the big things. And if I can't have those things, I, I think nothing really matters. If we pull up and look at God, we begin to say, well, I've got to look bigger than just the short term. Where are things actually headed? And when, when he looked at the at, at evil people getting so-called good things from God's perspective, they, they are the ones who seem to be on slippery ground. 
He said, now I feel like I'm on slippery ground, but the fact is when you walk with God, you're not. Those who leave God out of their lives, they're on slippery ground, and the real reason is because someday they are going to have to stand before God and they've left God out of their lives. And, and brothers and sisters, you've got to, this is not a popular message for 21st century Southern California, but judgment is real. God has said that evil will be judged, and we think we don't like that message, but we do, because nothing is worse than thinking of a world where evil just abounds and is never judged. And God has said, my world is a just world, and so someday evil will be judged. And you know the gospel. You and I have done evil, but our judgment that we needed for that, Jesus took it, hallelujah. <laughs> But if people have left God completely out of their lives, I'm telling you, they are on slip. They are in a bad place. Lord, when I look at where they're going to be when they stand before you before the judgment, that's not where I want to be. He began to see them from heaven's perspective and eternal perspective. And the way he puts it in verse 20 is so profound. Here, now I see it. They these wicked people and all that they have and that I think that's what I've got to have to live, they are like a dream that when you awake, when you arise, I find, Lord, you will despise them, you will judge them. Do you see what he's getting at there? Do any of you have dreams? Do you, do you ever remember any of them? Uh, do you know what the most common dream in the United States is? The most common dream is that um, you find yourself out in some public place like a shopping mall. And, and everybody um, that you respect and admire and you want them to admire you, they are there. And then you suddenly look at yourself and you realize you had forgotten even to get dressed that morning at all. Any, any, I won't ask you to vote. I just want to, have you ever had that dream? Apparently a lot of us have a dream, something like this. I see a few of you nodding no, I'm glad. But about 90% didn't nod no. Um, so you do that. So what happens is, oh man, and other dreams can do this too. You become nervous, frantic. You're afraid, what am I going to do? Can I get out of here? You shake and, and in that, suddenly you're just startled out of your dream. You jump up at, from bed at night and you look around you. It felt so real. It was just a dream. It's not going to, you feel so silly, don't you? Have you ever had that happen? You feel so silly. God's word says that's, that's what the uh, prosperity of people who put temporary things into the center of their lives is like. It seems like in the short term, this is such a big thing. It is not even real. Because in the light of the eternity, those things that many people put at the center of their lives will not last. That, that's what he discovered one day. That in terms of eternal things, we have everything that we hold on to. And we learn this when we come to worship God. And this is one of the reasons why, why I encourage you both to be a part of a small group, but also to come every week to worship, whether you feel like it or not. Because when you come to worship, you've got to take a few moments to put God at the center of your vision. I, I hope that the reason why you come to worship is not just to be entertained, Though I hope some parts of it will not be boring. I, I pray, I hope that. I hope that the reason why you come to church is not just even to be taught, but the main thing that will happen to you when you come to Lake Avenue Church is that you will worship, that you'll have a fresh encounter with God, 
that you'll begin to see things from his perspective and be able to trust him with those temporary things. That he's the one who's in charge of what is happening in your present and he's the God of the future. When you know that and you know that this God is the one who loves you so much that he sent his one and only son to die for you, then you can say, I know whatever's happening to me, that God is at work for good to those who love him. It's the first thing he discovered in worship. What else? Number two. He also, when he worshiped, and I'm praying this might happen to you today, he gained a new perspective on himself. Verses 21 to 24, in which he will say, he, he says, God, I am always with you. So Asaph takes a few moments in verses 21 and 24 to look inside of himself. And he saw that his heart, verse 21, was grieved. His spirit had been embittered. All the way back to verse 3, he'd even envied the arrogant. So this is what, when you worship, you, you see God, then you look at yourself, and what you see inside yourself isn't all that good. Amen? Uh, you see the faults that you have, the thoughts that you've had, the attitudes that you've had, and, and sometimes you just have to say, oh, Lord, that's not the way I should be. So we look at ourselves, and then we wonder, is God going to forgive me and start with me again? Then we cast our eyes to him, and we see this other thing about ourselves, that in spite of all of our sins, God knows us, that he is with us, and that he will carry us even into eternity. Uh, Asaph in verses 21 to 22 just kicks himself for just leaving God out of his life. But then when you get to verses 23 and following, he just smiles and he says, in my worship service today, here's the one thing I realize, that I do believe in God and that God is always with me. So, so you can imagine it. You walk into the house of God, you see these things that are wrong in your life, and sometimes the, it's like the devil just speaks into your life and says, how can you say that you're a Christian? With all those questions and doubts that you have, and you know, your thoughts, they're not great, and those deeds that you've done this last week, they're not all that great either. How can you pretend that you are a Christian? And then you walk into worship. And here's the thing. I've written this down for you. I want you to think about it. When you worship, you realize that it's not only your doubts you have to come to terms with. It's also your faith. Your faith, your relationship to God is as much a real part of your life as any doubts that might trouble you. Are you with me here? So, so matters arise in this imperfect world that cause questions about what you believe about God. But no amount of questions can ever annihilate a genuine experience that you and I have with God through faith in Jesus. I, I tell you, I feel like we need to come into church sometimes just to re-anchor that. And to say again, Lord, I do believe in you. And then to hear God say, I hold you with my right hand. I will always be with you. And even if death comes to you, like he said to Asaph, I will take you into glory. That's what he discovered that one day when he came to worship God. I, I just, isn't it an important thing to grasp hold of this? Sometimes it seems to me we feel like our, our relationship to God is kind of like these little weak plants that you've got to keep in a greenhouse and you're afraid that any kind of wind or sun or whatever is going to, to, to destroy it. 
But, but what the Bible keeps telling us is when we receive Jesus, a real relationship with God begins. It's more like a hearty perennial. Once again, it's maybe a little bit hard for Southern California, the ice that would happen in Chicago. It looked like the plants were dead, but the next spring, they popped back up again. They were still alive. Or the other illustration that I thought of, I used to love to fish when I grew up in West Virginia. When you fish in the pond, sometimes you have that cork, that bobber that, that, is, on, that, that is there on your fishing line. Sometimes when the winds would blow, it goes underneath the water, and you wonder, is it gone? And then in a few moments, pops right back up again. That's the way it is in this turbulent world. There are times when the questions come and you wonder if it's real. You come into worship. And I pray you experience this sometimes. As you're singing, something inside of you comes alive. And you say, I am a child of God. Lord, my faith is in you. That happened to Asaph that day. I pray it happens to you every time you come to Lake Avenue Church so that you know whatever happens in this world, it cannot rob you of that real relationship to God that you have. I mean, Asaph seems to try this thing of, I'm going to deny that I'm even a believer in God. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 19 and 20 really tries to do it. He, he was so upset with God that one day he said, I'm not going to believe this anymore. I'm not going I'm not going to believe in you. I'm not going to obey you. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not a follower of you anymore, God. And then he said, the moment I try to do that, your word is in my heart like a burning fire. When I try to deny it, I can't even keep it in. I'll tell you, this is my experience as well. If you try to stay out of worship, you may not have this beautiful opportunity to have God say to you, I know you. I love you, and you are mine. So in worship, he gained this new perspective on destiny. He gained this new perspective on himself, that he had a real relationship to God. And the final thing you've got to see is that he gained a new perspective on what, what really matters, what's really important. And um, here's what he said. It, it is good to be near God. All right. Have you ever talked with somebody who every time you ask that person a question, their, their muscle goes this way? Well, it, it all depends on what you mean by, kind of, kind of like the politicians use. And students, you might try this if you're in a class and your teacher asks you a question and you don't know the answer. You might want to buy a little time by saying, well, it all depends upon what you mean by. I don't know if it'll help you. Uh, you can try it. But let's try it right now. The big question that undergirds the entire psalm is this one, that God can be counted on to be good to his people. How do you answer that? You might say, well, it all depends on what you mean by good. If you mean by good, is God committed to giving good kinds of riches and wealth to all of his people who show up at church and listen to Pastor Greg preach every week and try to do it? If that's what you mean by good, then no, God, God isn't always going to be good to his people. I'll tell you, if you mean by good uh, 
Does God make all people of faith healthy whenever they come and pray in just the right way? If, if that's what you mean by good, then no, God, God isn't good to his people. Especially if you, uh, if you ask, is God committed if to, to do this good thing, to making his people popular and everybody like you? Then if that's what you mean by good, then no, God is not good to his people. So if having more and more material things, if having ongoing good health, if having popularity in this world is what you mean by good, then no, God is not good to those who are his. But let me tell you this, those benefits, as good as they are, and many times God does give us those kinds of benefits, we've experienced that so often, but those benefits, as good as they are, are not what true goodness consists of, right? One of the greatest mistakes I think we make in this world is allowing our, our pursuit of temporary good things to take the place of the best thing. Look at verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And God, when I have you, then there is nothing in this world that I require. Now, I read that. This, this reminds me of so many weddings that I've done over the years. Uh, Many, when I just see the young couple come in front of me and in the passion of their youth and enthusiasm, they stand there and they hear the other person say, I take you for richer, for poorer. They have no idea how poor that poor is, right? <laughs> uh, I take you in sickness and in health. They have no idea how devastating that kind of sickness might be. Especially, I take you for better or for worse. I mean, well, how bad can that worse get to be? But you know, what they mean, or at least should mean, <laughs> when they stand in front of the pastor and say that is to have that other person is so precious that even if I don't have any of this other good stuff, having you, I can live then in fact, my very ability to really enjoy any of these other kind of good things were dependent upon me experiencing it with you, right? Well, if a human love can mean that much to us, how much more should our relationship to God mean the whole world to us? Verse 26. So my flesh and my heart may fail in this world. But God is the strength of my heart. The eternal God is my portion forever. All right. If we take time to try to consider all the other good things that we see people getting and we're, we're getting not any of that stuff, uh, you can put, and I just wrote down a couple, you can put whatever might be the good thing that you feel like that's got to happen or I can't find happiness. L let's think about house and home. One day, if you get the house that you most have always wanted in your entire life, one day uh, you'll even be able to pay off the mortgage. But no matter how great that house is, um, 
One of these days, that house is going to fall down. One of these days. And what if someday you're able to get that car, that car that you wanted more than any other car that you could ever even imagine? And even if you're able to get that car, someday that car is going to fall apart. One of these days. I even think for Cub fans, if they win after all these years, <laughs> there's another season coming and maybe another century to go before the next one. <clears throat> I mean, do you really think that those are the things that true goodness consists of? If that's what you think that makes life good, I pity you. I'll tell you, the New Testament tells us that when we surrender to Jesus Christ, we find the pearl of great price for which to know him, we should be willing to give away anything else in this world, and we still would have made a good deal. That's what the Bible says. Uh, Asaph learned of that one day when he went into the house of God. He said that in the light of the beauty of knowing God, it's foolish to doubt you and to, to just always be frustrated because I can't have these things that don't last and don't matter. He got his life back into perspective. He began with doubt. He ended. He walked out of the time of worship with a deeper, richer, more genuine relationship to God than he had ever had before. So here you are in the house of God today. Uh, does Asaph speak to you through his psalm? Oh, I, I pray so. He tells you that God is good to his people. But he says, let me tell you what I mean by good. It is good to be near God. That's what it means to be good. And when you are with him, there is nothing else that you have to have in this world in order to have life and you'll be able to live to his glory. Amen. Amen. Let me lead us in prayer. So, Father, I pray I've been faithful to your word. Deepen our trust in you. Father, I pray for each one who's come today that just as Asaph experienced in your house, that, that each one here, we might have a fresh meeting and encounter with you that changes our thinking and our lives. Speak to us today, Father. This is what we pray for. Our lives are yours. Our ears are yours. Lead us. Do through your word whatever you would do to accomplish your purposes in us and through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.